Before we get started, I want to just give you kind of a framework for who I am. So I grew up in, I was born and raised in Lake Havasu City. Anybody know where that is? Yeah. Um, it's always a little awkward when I say I'm from there. People are like, oh, party. I'm like, no, that wasn't really my, my scene. But um, that, that is my home. My mom and dad live there. I'm heading back there tomorrow for the week of Thanksgiving. Um, I grew up in church, hated church when I was a kid. And so now I'm a pastor, joke's on me. Um, but met Christ at 16. And um, everything kind of changed from that point forward. Prior to that, I wanted to be a jet pilot. I wanted to fly a 14 Tomcats. Who didn't want to fly a 14 Tomcats after like seeing Top Gun? Um, and I, I sensed God call me into ministry. And so to prepare for that, I went to uh, California Baptist University, graduated there in 09 and moved out here January 1st of 2010 to go to Phoenix Seminary and then just graduated there in May. Um, in the meantime, started coming to Redemption Church and was fortunate to come on staff as a pastoral resident in February and have been loving it. I'm also, in addition to being here, I'm also a part-time professor at Grand Canyon University. And so it's kind of me in a nutshell. I love heavy metal. Yeah, lopes up. Um, I love heavy metal, which, so this is the sign for um, the GCU antelopes. And for the longest time, I thought it was this, which is met, like heavy metal or punk rock. And it's actually this. So anyways, it's good good correction. I like metal and, and F-14s. That's kind of me. Um, so we're wrapping up Romans, and this is exciting. Um, I'm wondering, who has been here, just by a show of hands, since we started Romans? Just curious. No pressure. Yeah, so quite a few. That's awesome. Um, lots changed since then, and some of those changes are good. Some of those are bad. Uh, one bad thing is Eugene has moved away, but we're, we're glad to have him here this, this morning. Um, one other bad thing is Frank has gotten older. Um, the other pastoral resident, Sean Myers, has gotten uglier, which is actually probably good. Um, other changes that have taken place just in general. Um, the Arizona Cardinals have started winning more, which is awesome. Yeah. ASU has done well in football, which is unusual. Um, I don't have any affinities with them. I just like to make fun of them. Um, and a lot of changes have taken place even here since we started Romans. Uh, 19 of you have come forward to be baptized. That's incredible. That's great. 23 babies have been born. Whoa. That's a lot. Love is in the air, I guess, here. Um, which has caused our downstairs, where our children's ministry is, caused it to, to really grow. And so um, this is just a, a little plug. Is this good? Go volunteer in children's ministry because we have more kids. We need more helpers. Um, no, seriously, at large, Redemption Church has seen a lot of changes, one of which is we've added Alhambra Village, 19th Avenue and Indian School. We've planted Tucson, and we've announced Peoria. And so with all of that change, uh, one of those things that has happened is Sean Myers, the pastoral resident who's going to go plant Peoria, um, he's leaving. That gives me an opportunity to preach more. Um, and so Frank asked me a couple months ago, said, would you finish off the book of Romans for us? And so we started having a conversation about what that would look like. And he basically said, your job will be to summarize and recap everything that we've covered so far. <laughs> so, oh, thanks, Frank. No problem. Uh, throw me in the deep end. No, I'm, I'm privileged to be here. I'm excited, and um, we're going to comb through Romans. The first thing that we see is the doxology. And Amy just read it for us. In chapter 16, 25 through 27, we see this doxology. First thing that comes to mind is, what is a doxology? Doxology is a word that comes from two Greek words. 
doxa and logos. Doxa means glory, and logos means word. So literally, the word doxology is like a word or words about the glory of God. When I was a kid, I loved the doxology. Not, not because I loved God or loved God's glory, but because I went to a very formal liturgical church, and at the end, if you grew up in a liturgical tradition, you know the doxology marks the end of the service. And with the end of the service meant it was time to go home. And I was always happy about that because, I, like I said, I hated, hated church. The only reason I went to church was to eat the donut holes, which is still kind of true today. Um, <laughs> I, would go, I would go over as a kid and I'd just fill up my shirt like a kangaroo pouch with donut holes and just eat them. And I would do that now, but Frank hired those police officers in the back <laughs> for the express purpose of preventing me from doing that. Anyways, the point is, I did not love God as a kid. I did not love God's glory I didn't even understand God's glory. But as I've combed through Romans, I've really come to see that this theme of God's glory is central to the book of Romans. And we see this most specifically in the fact that, and this is kind of my central point today, God's glory is revealed in the gospel. Again, God's glory is revealed in the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. Everything that's written in Romans is written to emphasize the glory of God. Um, this, this theme just permeates the entire letter. And what, it, what Paul did intentionally is he started with this theme in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then he ends with this theme in uh, chapter 16, verses 2 through 5, so as to kind of frame it with like, like brackets. And what he says is interesting in, in 16 Uh, 25 through 27, is that the mystery of the gospel had not formally been revealed. And so that causes my mind to kind of wonder, why wasn't it revealed? Not sure. The scriptures don't tell us. Um, But what the scriptures are clear on is that Christ has been revealed and that that gospel is the supreme glory of God. So here's what we're going to do. We're literally going to walk through the book of Romans in its entirety. So if you have your Bibles, get them out, turn to Romans 1. And what I'm going to ask you to do is kind of put the doxology on hold for now. We'll unpack a little more of that later, but primarily we're just going to be combing through all of Romans. We're going to start in chapter one. I'll ask you to kind of keep your finger or bookmark or whatever in in your Bibles because we're going to be reading then discussing then reading then discussing. The place where we start is um, kind of right out of the gates. In, In chapter one, verse 16, Paul brings this theme of God's glory in the gospel right to the forefront of our attention. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So this statement kind of sets the tone for the rest of what Paul's going to write in Romans. He, he feels compelled to write with clarity and without shame for the, the glory of the gospel. He feels really no sense of obligation to avoid stepping on toes. He's, he's completely unashamed. He feels no need to shrink back from declaring the truth of God. Why? Because it's the good news of the gospel and because it's the power of God. And through that, through the saving work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, humans can experience salvation. Salvation. Who? Which humans? Everyone who believes, it says. Oftentimes I hear people say things like, um, Christianity is too narrow. Jesus is too exclusive. 
And, and, they, and they'll reject Christianity kind of based on that. And I always find this interesting because on the one hand, there's some truth there. Jesus is clear in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? No one comes to the Father but through me. So there's a sense of exclusivity. But um, it's not exclusivity for the, just for the sake of exclusivity, but it is inclusive exclusivity, meaning everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. This is inclusive language. And Paul demonstrates this when he compares Jews and Gentiles. He says that Jews were the, the Old Testament chosen people of God, but now through the gospel, the glory of God is revealed and, and access is for everyone, all people. Unfortunately, all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, have rejected the glory of God and really favored their own glory. This causes God to reveal wrath against humans because humans, Romans 1 says, reject and suppress the truth about God. And this rejecting and suppressing the truth takes intentional effort on our behalf. Why? Because Paul says, what has been known about God is plain to us ever since the beginning of the world in the created order, in the things that have been made. So the sun, the moon, the sea, the stars, the sky, all of this proclaims God's glory, testifies to his goodness and to his existence, and yet people look at that and they suppress it and they say, no, we want to exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship something else other than him. The Bible calls this sin. People sew their eyes shut. They close the doorways of their minds. Their hearts are darkened. And they exchange that truth about God for a lie. This is confusion because it, what it does is it takes a good thing. And by, by worshiping something other than God, I don't mean that like I worship that less Paul, although I'm tempted to. Um, what I mean is that we value something created more than the creator. And that could be a guitar, it could be money, it could be relationships, job, you know, fill in the blank. Paul says this is confusion. This is getting it backwards. God is the creator. The created things are meant to be used for good. They aren't ultimate things. In response to this exchanging of the truth for a lie, God responds in wrath and in judgment. But not the type of wrath or judgment that we think of when we typically think of wrath or judgment. This is a much scarier kind of wrath or judgment. For God just gives people over in response to this. We see it in 24, 26, and 28. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up over and over and over. What the Bible is essentially saying is this. When we worship something other than God, when we value and cherish something more than him, he eventually just goes, okay, have it your way which is terrifying, by the way, to just be given over to that which we most want, and that's ourselves. And so from there, God gives people over to all kinds of immoral behaviors, all kinds of things that the Bible calls sin, coveting, murder, strife. Romans 1 lists all of these things, maliciousness, gossips, homosexual behavior, foolishness, haughty, boastful, on and on and on. Disobedient to parents, it even lists. And suddenly we go, whoa, whoa. It's like no one is excused from this. It's like being hit by a bus in a sense. Chapter two comes along and we, f- we feel the weight of that. Look at chapter two, verse one. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. 
every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We realize the universality of human sinfulness, even our own. All people, Jew or Gentile, are under God's wrath and doom for breaking the righteous standard of God. All people everywhere stand on the same level before the justice of God. All people everywhere are in need of the salvation that God offers. But none of us can live up to that standard. And so as the bus kind of hits us, it now, through the rest of chapter 2, just drags us underneath. We go to chapter 3. We look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. Um, you know, actually, let's back up. I, just forgive me. I skipped um, the section just before that, which was important. In being kind of hit by this bus of like, wow, everybody is sinful, Paul lists the, the, the total depravity, the nature of this in chapter three, starting in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is heavy language. This is totalizing language. It leaves all of us in a place where we are without excuse, and we can't just kind of shrug this off like, well, it's no big deal. The weight of this is serious, and it continues on in 19 and 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is bad news. You might be thinking, wait, I thought we were going to talk about the good news. Like, I don't see that here. And you'd be right. There is no good news here. But Paul gives this pervasive depiction of human depravity for a reason. And that reason is to emphasize that for good news to truly be good, we have to have some level of understanding of what the bad news really is. It really is that bad. Sin breaks everything. Sin breaks everyone, all of us. But the tone kind of shifts, and this is where the good news starts to become the dominant theme throughout the rest of the letter. So the bad news is bad. We saw that from chapter 1 all the way into 320. Now we look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This word, justify, 
justified by his grace as a gift. This is a legal term, like a courtroom. Think of uh, like a gavel coming down, declaring somebody, you know, not guilty or guilty. And Paul says that in light of what Jesus has accomplished through his death and resurrection, that people can be declared uh, not guilty. But um, people, people kind of assume that they're not guilty because most of us, if we're honest, we tend to think that deep down inside we're morally righteous people, that we're just kind of instinctively good. And whenever you read things like Romans 3, that no one is righteous, no, not one, all have turned aside, it kind of rubs people the wrong way because it, it rubs against everything that they've been taught by like Oprah or Dr. Phil, that like deep down inside we're good people. And whenever I encounter folks who say that, yeah, humans aren't innately bad, they're innately good. I ask them, do, do you know any toddlers? Like, really? Do you, do you actually know any toddlers? Because toddlers are little factories of sin. <laughs> I, honestly, I, I love them. I think they're great. Um, I work sometimes downstairs with them. And in fact, a couple weeks ago, um, I was in the toddler's room, and a little guy comes up to me, and he goes, I have to go poo-poo. And I went, Okay. And I kind of looked around, I was like, what's protocol on this, guys? Because they didn't teach me this one in seminary. And so they just said, you need to take him to the bathroom and hold him on the toilet because he's, you know, it's an adult toilet and his little bum will fall through if you don't hold on to him. And so off we went to the bathroom and I kind of asked him on the way there, I said, so it's poo-poo, right? Not pee-pee? And he goes, yeah, poo-poo. So <laughs> we go and, you know, pop him up on the toilet and he doesn't have to go poo-poo. He has to go pee-pee. But he doesn't tell me this. He just demonstrates it. <laughs> and it goes everywhere, including on me. And I'm thinking, this, this can't be happening. So I'm like, oh! you know? And he finishes his business, and um, it, he, poor guy, he was a mess. I, felt, I really felt bad for the parents, who will remain nameless, because I don't know if they're here. Um, I love you guys. Thank you for tolerating me in that. And so as we're kind of getting situated, he looks at my shirt and Home Slice has the audacity to laugh at me. He goes, I beat on your shirt. And I'm thinking, this is a mess. How am I going to get out? Like, you're a mess. I'm a mess. Everyone is a mess. I don't tell that story to say that he is sinful for peeing on me. I don't tell that story to say that um, he was sinful for laughing at me. It was funny and it was an accident. So but we were a mess. And I remember thinking, how are we going to get out of this mess? And in a sense, it's, it's kind of like, um, although less, obviously less serious, than the mess that we find ourselves in Romans 3. Everyone's a mess. You're a mess. I'm a mess. How are we going to get out of this? Paul says, through Christ. Through Christ. And this is where that theme of God's glory revealed in the gospel really starts to develop. In verse 24, it says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The law of God, his righteous requirement, tells us that um, we, have to, we have to be righteous in order to be in the presence of God. And the only way for that to occur is through Christ. And this would be bad news if Jesus hadn't come. Why? Because verse 23, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. God's glory in the gospel, even though we have sinned, 
is still revealed in the good news of Jesus. How? Through this justification, through declaring us righteous. What mechanism? Jesus. Jesus is the mechanism that enables this to be possible, to enable our redemption. Guys, our name as a church, redemption, is derived from the centrality of the good news of the gospel that Jesus saved us. Amen? This is, good, this is good news. And so now we look at the end of chapter three and we see the theme of God's glory revealed in the gospel and it moves out of chapter three and into chapter four where Paul writes about Abraham's faith um, in God and God's grace towards Abraham. Uh, Abraham in the Old Testament exhibited a deep faith in and love for Jesus, uh, for, for God. Um, we would say that in a sense he had belief in Jesus but Jesus was not yet revealed. And this faith Paul commends as something that brings us peace with God. And we see this in chapter five. Turn to chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So this theme of God's glory revealed in the gospel, it really kind of gets kicked into high gear here in chapter five and through the rest. In light of this being declared righteous, in light of having peace with God, um, we, we know that this is the case because of Jesus' death on our behalf. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is one of the most important verses in the book of Romans. We who call Jesus Lord can take comfort in this verse, 5, 8. Why? Because it's deeply personal. It's a deeply personal verse. Notice what it says, that Christ died for sinners. Not just died for sin, but died for us as people. This is a personal verse. Notice also what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, hey, like, once you got your life together and came to Jesus, then he accepted you. Once you um, kind of figured things out and became a better person, once you obeyed him enough, then he accepted you, or then he died for you. Once you became a morally decent enough individual, then he died for you. No, it doesn't say any of that. It says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then out of that, out of chapter 5, and into chapter 6, Paul unpacks the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and how that shapes our identity and shapes our response to sin. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Sometimes people kind of wrongly assume that because God extends grace to sinners that they can just kind of live however they want and um, that God will just wink at sin or just brush it under the rug um, because after all, there's, there's God's grace. And Paul anticipates that type of thinking and in response to that, he says, no, no, that's not possible. The, the Greek phrase here is meganoita and meganoita carries kind of the same emphatic weight of like, almost like saying hell no. Although Paul's not saying hell no, he's not cussing here, but it's, it carries that same force of like, 
No way. No way is a Christian just going to keep purposefully sinning with thinking, oh, well, God will just brush it under the rug. No big deal. Why? Because that is contrary to who they are as a person. It's out of sync with their identity. In this theme of identity, we see, look at verse 6 of chapter 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Being enslaved to sin has no place in the Christian life. Christians have been set free from it because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Look now at chapter 6, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. In light of being set free from sin, Christians grow in sanctification. Sanctification is a word talking about growing in godliness, growing to become more like God. Um, Those who follow him operate within that framework or on that trajectory of sanctification. Um, it's It's a tough process, but it's something that God works in and through us through the Holy Spirit. And it's not as though it's always an upward trajectory. I remember one time we talked about this in, in um, theology class, and Wayne Grudem drew this straight arrow. And he says, is this sanctification? And we all went, no, not in our lives. It, it's a bit of a bumpy road. We feel this pull of the flesh of temptation and sin. And we see this pull of the flesh, temptation and sin, in the life of Paul, who uh, was arguably one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. This pull He kind of gives us a glimpse of it in his own life. So turn to chapter 7 now. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He feels this tension of, yeah, I, I belong to Christ, but I still do the things that I shouldn't do. And I don't do the things that I should do. But Paul doesn't just throw up his arms and say, ah, well, might as well give up. Might as well throw in the towel. No, instead, he acknowledges the painful struggle of sin, and then he begins uh, to talk about God's rescuing of him. Verse 24 of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. From there, he begins one of the most important sections in the entire Bible. I've heard John Piper say that chapter 8 of Romans is um, arguably the greatest book in, in the whole, the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the whole Bible. And he may well be right. Um, chapter 8 starts with this significant phrase There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I remember one time I was um, mentoring this kid, uh, this young guy who was just having a hard time really, really discouraged. We were kind of at dinner, and he was expressing to me, man, I just don't know if I'm saved. I just don't know if I'm saved. I have no real assurance, and I struggle with sin, deep sin, and he's sharing this with me, and he's pouring out his heart, and he's, he's borderline, like, crying, and he goes, I just, I don't know. And so I asked him, I said, um, how much do you see yourself as primarily identified with Jesus. And he kind of went, well, what do you you mean? And I said, 
what you've told me seems like you identify mostly with your sin. I just keep doing this thing. I just keep doing this, this sin or these sins. And it's true, we need to acknowledge what we do and, and, and you know, say that that's bad. God doesn't want that. Um, we, we should resist that. But we shouldn't identify with that. How much do you identify with Jesus? How much do you see yourself as united with him? And he kind of went, uh, I, I don't really. And so what we did is we started to walk through Romans 6, 7, and then we got to 8. And as we're going through Romans 6, it was just, it was, he was tracking. It was resonating with him. He was going, yeah, yeah, I need to identify with Jesus. I need to understand that my old self has passed away. And then we get to chapter 7, and we see Paul himself wrestling with, I do the things that I shouldn't do, and I don't do the things that I should do, and wretched man that I am. And, and my friend is looking at this, and he's going, yeah, this is, I get this. This is me. And then we get to Romans 8, and I was so excited to get there. And I read this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I looked and I said, bro, there's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ. And he, he looked at me, I'll never forget this, with tears in his eyes, and he said, I forgot that that verse was in the Bible. And the tears in his eyes, I think, were, they, they contained a certain measure of sorrow, but they also contained a certain measure of joy in that this good news of Jesus not condemning him because he's connected to Jesus uh, made him refreshed. It made him feel the joy of almost like knowing Christ for the first time. This theme of being united to Christ and the glory of God revealed in the gospel of Christ permeates this entire chapter of chapter 8. And Paul goes on at, by the end of the chapter to say that what can separate us from God's love? Nothing. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from God's love. For those of us that love Christ, not anything in all of creation. In light of this inseparable love that uh, Christ has for his people, Paul goes on in chapter 9 to speak with a heavy heart about those who do not know Christ. Look at chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about his, his brothers from his former Jewish faith. Whenever I read this section in Romans 9, it always kind of haunts me a little bit because it forces me to wonder, how much do I really want my unsaved friends to know Jesus? Like, really? Do I, I think of the guys I, I grew up in a, being in a band with. They're close as brothers could be without being actual brothers. And um, m- most of them don't know Christ. Um, I still pray for them often, but I don't, I don't know if I could say that I wish I was cut off from Christ in order for them to be saved. But that's not the point. That's not the point. The point is, I don't save anybody. God does. And Paul makes that point in the rest of chapter 9, where he kind of unfolds that God is glorified in the gospel, saving whoever he wants. Whoever he wants. It means he saves some people and he doesn't save others, which is challenging for us to kind of navigate because we tend to think of, well, God should just give mercy to everyone. Why does God save some but, but not others? Really, the, the better question is, why doesn't God give everyone what they truly deserve? Justice. It's because God in his mercy through the glory of the gospel, chose to rescue some 
and pass over others in justice. And this doesn't discourage Paul, though, because his heart, we see, it still longed for his, for his friends and his family, for people that were unsaved, to be saved, to know Christ. We saw it at the beginning of chapter 9, and then we turn to chapter 10. We see it at the beginning of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And then in Romans 10, 13, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is important to note that it's not as if we have God passing over some people who are calling upon his name, going, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hear you, I'm going to reject you. No, he doesn't do that. It's clear that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, saved by God. This is inclusive language. Everyone who calls on his name. If you're here, maybe for the first time you think, you know, I don't know about this Jesus guy. I've never really called upon his name. Romans 10 is real clear. You can call upon his name right now and be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is, this is good news. Not surprisingly, Paul makes it clear that not everybody has called upon the name of God. And we see this unfold in chapter 11. There are many, and he gives the example of the Israelite people. Many, many Israelites have not called upon the name of the Lord. They were disobedient and contrary, but yet God hasn't rejected them. He explains that God still has a plan to bring them, the Jewish people, to faith in Christ. How this will occur? doesn't say. It's a mystery. But what he does say is that the gospel is the glory of God, and he bursts out in praise of this at the very end of chapter 11. Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. This theme of God's glory, which causes Paul to burst out in praise, occupied really all of chapters 1 through 11. And now, as we approach chapter 12, Paul kind of turns a corner. And he says, in light of the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection on, the, on behalf of sinners, that people can walk in the faithfulness of God. They can walk in love. And this is the primary theme that really develops out of Romans 12. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Whenever we read the Bible and we see the word therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what's the therefore, therefore? Um, honestly, because it's there for a reason. It's a, it's a uh, concluding statement. And so what most Bible scholars have said is Romans 12, 1, the therefore, doesn't just refer back to the like, immediate section of Romans 11, but to the entirety of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, that in light of this glorious gospel that God has made known, Christians should walk in love. And so we see this unpacked, especially in verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, all of these things. We, uh, a couple months ago, we started walking through these verses 
kind of verse by verse. And I remember when we got to Romans 12, 12, it says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. And Frank spent an entire Sunday just on that verse. And the reason I remember this sermon so distinctly is because there's a, there's a woman in our congregation who lives this verse every day. Um, many of you know Joyce Campbell. She's a dear sister of ours. She's been coming to Redemption Church faithfully for a long time. She was here even when it was Praxis. And a couple years ago, she was diagnosed with cancer. And recently that um, had worsened significantly. And yet she still maintains a deep trust in and love for Jesus because of her ability to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. And so I go to her house every uh, Sunday after church, and we hang out, we watch the Cardinals, which is rad. She loves the Cardinals. And she'll ask me every week, what was the sermon about today? And I remember that week, sitting there on the couch thinking, the sermon was about you today, Joyce. It was about you. Literally a, a lady who lives this sermon. And the fact is, honestly, it's not just Joyce. Many of you are, are walking through challenges. Many of you are enduring hardships. And yet I see, as I get to know you, your deep love for Jesus, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, and being constant in prayer. This response to who God is really brings honor to God. In addition to bringing honor to God through loving him faithfully in the midst of hard times, we also honor God by, in chapter 13, obeying the government. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is a hard passage for me personally. Um, If you know me, I kind of march to the beat of my own drum, and so submitting to the authorities is not my favorite. For example, I park across the street on Thomas Road, and I jaywalk instead of taking the crosswalk. And the cops that help with the crosswalk, they, they threaten me sometimes that they're going to give me a ticket, and then I bribe them with donuts. So, um, Seriously, this honors God when we obey the government. And all of this obedience to the government is rooted in true Christian love for God and for other people. This is the whole summary of the law that Paul says in chapter 13. All of our conduct must be dictated by love for God and love for people. And this theme of love for God and people carries over into chapter 14. So turn to chapter 14. Paul says, this whole section, don't pass judgment on other Christians. Love them. If they do things um, differently than you, maybe they eat meat and you don't eat meat. That's the specific example he gives us here. But maybe a more uh, current example would be like, some people choose to drink alcohol with, with wisdom and in moderation, and some people don't. Paul says, for those of you that drink, don't judge the people that do drink. And for those of you that don't drink, don't then judge the people who do drink. Why? Because it's up to them. God says that our response to people who um, have different convictions on m- minor things needs to be rooted in love. And then he says, in addition to that, don't let your freedom become uh, something that you abuse and then you cause your other Christian brothers and sisters to stumble. All of this is rooted in chapter 15 in the example of Christ. So turn to chapter 15 
And look at verses 5 and 6. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here again, the theme of God's glory revealed in the gospel, the good news, it grants us the ability to live in harmony with one another. And Paul longed to see this happen in, in between Jews and Gentiles who disagreed about some, of, some things that were minor. But what's beautiful is as Paul transitions from chapter 15 into chapter 16, we see this list of greetings. And that list of greetings has a bunch of names, Jewish names and non-Jewish names, which gives us kind of a tangible example from history of a community of people that were centered around love for the glory of God and the gospel, and yet they had unity present within their diversity. And so now we arrive at the final section of Romans where we kind of started the doxology. Chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. What Paul does here is he concludes with the gospel just as he began with the gospel. He's kind of bracketing his whole, his whole piece of literature. And then he says that God gets glory in verse 25 now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ God gets glory when we are strengthened by the gospel. How does he do that? Well, in chapter 8, he said that he does that by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of Christians and enables them to walk in love and to have victory over sin. That process to become more like Jesus, although it had formerly been, what Paul says here, a mystery, is now revealed. Why it was a mystery before, not sure. Scripture isn't clear. But it has been revealed, and we are assured that God, in chapter, in chapter 16, verse 27, is wise. In God's wisdom, he chose to keep the, the mystery of the gospel secret for some time, but now has revealed it. And this revealing of it is meant to bring about the faithful obedience of the nations. So, we're going to wrap up. I want to ask, how do we respond? What is this kind of what do we what do we take home from this? I want to go back to the story of my my friend who I was meeting with and who had felt the the weight and joy of Romans 8:1. We continued to talk um, about how nothing can separate him from Christ's love and he um, well we spent some time in prayer and I remember two things in his prayer that were really, really simple, but really profound. He said, he said this, God, thanks for saving me. Also, would you help me? This is exactly, those two things, this is exactly what Paul basically ends with in Romans 16, 25 through 27. He thanks God. He gives praise to God in a doxology. He gives glory to God by saying, you revealed to us the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for sinners. And then he said, strengthen us through that. Help me. And so what we take away from this is we should praise God and we should ask God to strengthen us through the power of the Holy Spirit because of the gospel. And the cool thing is, is God promises to do that. And it's just simple. Like we, 
We just ask God for things. We ask God for wisdom. He gives us wisdom. We ask God for strength. He gives us strength. We know this to be true because God wants us to be conformed into the image of his son. We ask all things according to his will, so it's not like we're asking for a car. We're asking for something that God wants to give us, strengthening. And we do this with a heart that is rooted in praise towards him. So my prayer for you is that you'd celebrate God's glory revealed in the gospel, that Romans would um, become one of maybe your favorite books and that it would bring you great joy in reading it and that your identity would be formed through especially chapters 6, 7, and 8 and that you would feel compelled to ask God for strength. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the gospel and that through your life, death, and resurrection, we can be free from sin, that we can have assurance of salvation, not just because you died for sins, but because you died for us as people. Our hearts give you praise for that. And in light of that, we ask that you would strengthen us and that you'd stir our affections for you in times of good and in times of bad. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.